0: What's going on, Canes fans? We are back with another exciting episode of All Canes Radio Podcast. Back at Koyo Taco, 1514 South Dixie Highway. Come over, get great food, great drinks, specials for game day. Join them. Always Canes game day, day. With my fellas, Platinum Harry. What's going on, fellas?
1: Doing well. You Coming did- off a victory.
0: Coming off a victory. Is that why the weather's like this? Or is that why we got some cool weather or the rainy weather because we, we won?
1: It's it's getting to be winter time, you know?
0: Winter time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> winter in Miami. Hey, it's 65 60 out there. That's pretty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and tomorrow's going to be 75 us. again. <laughs> I know. That's, Unfortunately. That's winter for I was us. looking at
0: the game. I was like, ooh, what is the game time? Oh, it's 1230. We're not going to get no 60s this weekend. No. It's and that was gonna like 80 hot. probably or by <laughs> Saturday. Uh, 79,
1: 78.
0: I would have liked 72. That would have been nice. No. But you know, at 12 o'clock, there's not no happening.
1: way. We might need 92 against Duke.
0: You never know with them. We can talk about that later in the show. But right now we've got somebody that has done it before at Miami at the highest level, probably put together the best team ever in college football, the 2001 national championship. Joining us today is coach Butch Davis coach. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great guys. It's good to be with you.
0: We appreciate you taking the time out and joining us on the show. Uh, what are you up to these days? Let Canes fans know.
2: Yeah. Uh, for the first time, probably in my entire life, uh, just doing things that I enjoy doing every single day Uh, playing a little bit of golf going and watching my son Drew is coaching at uh, St. Thomas University uh, for the first year he's coaching the receivers and the tight end so I go watch them practice one day and go to their games on Saturday and uh, uh, become the uber driver for my wife Uh, when you're when you're a coach and you're busy all the time you know now all of a sudden it's like I between taxis and Uber and it's like, whenever she wants to go, let's go. I'll, I'll take you where you're wherever <laughs> you want to go.
0: Now, how was that adjustment? Cause like, you know, we, we talked to a lot of former players and stuff and a lot of times NFL guys, especially have a hard time transitioning into the real world. And sometimes mm-hmm. maybe it's about not knowing who they were again, or just not having that schedule. You know, how was it, you know, for yourself transitioning just to being
2: doing whatever you want? Yeah, it's a little bit different, obviously. Uh, you know, the, during the course of the 42 years that I was a coach, I, I did two years where I was with ESPN and I did two years with NFL Network, which was a little bit of a different, but still you had a job and you were watching a lot of video and getting ready for shows on the weekend and stuff. But, uh, you know, this is different and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's actually okay. I'm, I'm enjoying it because I'm getting a chance to do a lot of things. Obviously, uh, last weekend, got a chance to go to the 35th anniversary for the national championship game. And, and it was awesome uh, to see all those uh, former players and some of the coaches and some of the support staff that was there. And I mean, that was awesome. And, uh, you know, over the summertime, Jimmy Johnson has a uh, home obviously down in the keys and he has several of the former university of Miami coaches, myself and, and Dave Wanstead and Tony wise. And then he has Troy Aikman and a couple of other Dallas Cowboys, uh, uh, players and stuff. We go down there and hang out for four days, and sometimes fish, and sometimes just sit and tell lies and stories. Those be some good stories, down, wouldn't they? You know, for, <laughs> for 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 a lot of years. So, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a good time.
0: Uh, and that definitely would be a good time down there in the Keys. Have some drinks, maybe fish, maybe not. Working your tan, the whole nine yep. yards. Now, you mentioned uh, Coach Jimmy Johnson. I know you knew your first stint with the Miami Hurricanes were in the '80s. You know, speak yep. to us of the journey of getting to the Miami Hurricanes.
2: Yeah, you know, obviously we were at Oklahoma State and just finished a great season one and then the Astro Bowl and, and uh, you know, and Jimmy went to the coaches clinic in Dallas and I think it was around the beginning of June and uh, Coach Snellenberger had decided that he was going to leave and go into the USFL and and uh, Jimmy ran into Sam Jankovic, the athletic director, and, you know, and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to interview for the job and so Jimmy took the job and and about three days later, you know, he called me and he said, look, he, you know, at, at first originally when he told everybody he was taking the job, there was no open. Everybody on the staff was going to stay uh, as the assistant coaches. So there was no openings. And uh, But he called me about three or four days later and said that there was an opening. And he, he said, would you like to come down here? He said, I'd like for you to come and, and coach the defensive line and uh, and be the recruiting coordinator. And I said, can I be on the plane in about 10 minutes? And, uh, you know, so you know, I flew down, Jimmy picked me up. And, and obviously, you know, I was blessed um, from a coaching career and stuff to spend 15 years with him in Oklahoma state and Miami and with the Dallas Cowboys. And he was great to work with and he was an awesome leader. And uh, so it was good to get a chance to come down there in 1984, you know, it was a crazy season. I, you know, we went, and lost the Fiesta bowl to UCLA and, and uh, I think we finished the season was eight and five and everything. But, uh, you know, it didn't take long for Jimmy, like usually is to, you know, get things straightened out, uh, put in coaching staff that he wanted to try to build and start at that time. And then obviously, 85 through 89 were were great years. And, uh, you know, so it was it was it was a blessing. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate uh, I inherited, walked into the my position room and inherited uh, Jerome Brown and, uh, A lot of great players, you know, Danny Stubbs and some guys that became awesome players, not only for the University of Miami, but also into the National Football League and everything. And so that was that was terrific. And, you know, and then obviously coming back in 1995 to be the head coach was, you know, was another blessing.
3: Coach, Jimmy Johnson's known to be one of the greatest head coaches of all time as far as college or, or the NFL. But part of what made him great was his assistant coaches. Obviously, yep. you being one of them, but the talent that he brought on those coaching staffs, the, yep. you know, from the Gary Stevens to yourself to Wanstead to all those big names. How did he, you know, how did he accumulate such talent that then you saw become a head, become head coaches like yourself or Dave yep. Wanstead?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, and obviously some guys at the Dallas Cowboys, North Turner, you know, yeah. that went on to become a head coach, and Dave Campo that went on to become the head coach of the Cowboys. I think one of the things about Jimmy was is he had a, he had a great vision of who you were as a person and, you know, how much, you know, did you put as far as character and work ethic and, and the vision of, you know, uh, how you were going to treat the players. Uh, I mean, he loved guys that – treated the players with great you know positive attitudes and getting them to to play at a higher level than than they actually thought that they could play at and uh you know and if you were a coach that could do those kinds of things and whether it's a uh, guys i was blessed with with uh, greg marks and the bill hawkins and a lot of guys that you know everybody said oh you know they're going to be just mediocre guys and next thing you know they're all first round draft choices and playing in the nfl and you just get them to buy into things and uh you know, and so Jimmy, he, I, you know, a lot of the things, one, picking staff was great, but his, the uh, culture was one of the most important things. I mean, when he tried to every place he was at Oklahoma State and obviously when he came to Dallas and then came back to Miami with the Dolphins and stuff, he wanted a culture in the locker room and in the, in the meeting rooms and then on the practice field. And uh, and I think that, you know, when when you can create that culture, you got a chance to become a champion. And uh, man, he was excellent at that.
3: And and you certainly did that yourself. I mean, in ninety five. And I'd love to hear how what (laughs) events occurred for you to come back in ninety five. But, you know, you came back in ninety five and you assembled a hell of a staff that uh, plenty of assistant coaches became head coaches, both in college and the NFL.
2: Yeah. Well, obviously you learn an awful lot when you work with somebody like Jimmy Johnson and stuff. And when I took the job in 95 and Harry can appreciate this, uh, I probably should have been shot for taking the job.
1: Uh,
2: you know, nobody, nobody told me that they were going to lose 31 scholarships in the next three years and that you're going to have an 18 recruiting class and a 13 recruiting class and a 12 recruiting class. And it's like, man, what, what's going on here? But, uh, you know i loved south florida and i loved the the first 5 years with jimmy and you just you just put your eyes on the on the future and i learned one thing you know you bring in guys that are great coaches and guys like chuck pagano i mean i had chuck was in my staff for 11 years uh, at north carolina and he was with me at miami and And uh, at the Cleveland Browns and stuff like that, getting guys like him and Greg Shiano and Greg Mark. And we had some, we had some fabulous, fabulous coaches. Uh, uh, Curtis Johnson was a terrific coach with those wide receivers. Everybody want to know why Reggie Wayne and Santana Moss and Andre Johnson, why all those guys play good. They had a great coach. They had a guy that knows how to coach and how to motivate guys and get guys to play at a high level. And, and, uh, you know, so I was fortunate to be able to put together a, a good staff of guys that were good recruiters, they were good coaches. And, uh, and 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 we fought through the tough times. I mean, and people don't realize how difficult it was to lose 31 scholarships. And, uh, you know, and, and getting beat, you know, uh, by, by schools that probably should have never beaten the University of Miami, but knowing that the future was gonna be there. And then when we climbed out of it in 98, and, you know, probably the game that, that that made the biggest difference in changing that entire program was beating UCLA. They yep. came into the Orange Bowl, and they were 10-0. They were number two in the nation. They were going to play for the national championship. And Edron James ran all over their ass and had 299 yards rushing that game, and we won the game. And uh, Paul D., the athletic director, came to me after the locker room and and said, you know, we're going to get a bowl victory. We're going to get a chance to go to the Gator Bowl and stuff. But what he said was, how would you like to start the next season in the kickoff classic in New York and play against Ohio State? And I said, hell yes, let's go do it. And, you know, so from a recruiting standpoint of kids knowing that the program is turning, you just beat the number two team in the nation, you're going to play, I think, Ohio State the next year, they were preseason number two, three, or four, and, and we beat the daylights out of them in New York. And so th- that period of time flipped the entire program and allowed us to continue to recruit great players that You know, went on to win the national championship in in 2001 and and competed for it, to be honest with you. We probably should have won the national championship in 2000. Yes. That you you beat Virginia Tech and you beat. Yeah, I mean.
1: You beat Florida Florida State head to head and they went ahead of you. State
2: State, and they get to play in the game. And you're going to tell me. That we wouldn't have beat Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl, Easy. please. Come that on, that would man. have been a nice whipping, you know. But <laughs> so anyhow, so it was great, you know, to be a part of the program and uh, and a lot of great kids. And they, you know, anytime that a coach is successful, uh, you, you got to give a lot of compliments to the guys that do it, and that's the players.
0: Now you've mentioned, you know, a ton of names right there from the Reggie Waynes, the Santana Mosses, the the Edrin, the Jameses, the Ed Reed's, the Dan Morgans, the John Billmas. Yeah. you know you're known as one of the best talent evaluators ever. You know, you went to North Carolina, did the same exact thing, getting first-round picks all over the field. Marvin Austin, I mean, defensive ends everywhere. My question to you is, one, what do you look for in a player to say, this is the type of player that fits my system and – what separates you? Like, how do you go in and find a, a John Vilma that only has one or two scholarships, Miami Wake Forest, a Dan Morgan only has a couple of scholarships? Like, how do you identify as that guy as I see something in him? What is it that you see in those guys?
2: That's a great question. And, uh, you know, there, there's a couple of things. And one of it at the very, very beginning, playing at the University of Arkansas for Frank Rolls And. He had some teams that, you know, played for the national championship. They won it in 64 and they played for it again in 69 and then lost to Texas in the last game. And when you're in a program and you kind of look at like, okay, this guy's a great player. How come? Is he an athlete? Is he got great work? And and then, you know, so those are things. Then I got a chance and Jimmy probably did the greatest thing, uh, sign. I wasn't married at the time. And so at Oklahoma State. He let me go every single Thursday and Friday, no matter who we were going to play. And I would take one of the other nine coaches recruiting areas and they would give me their top eight or nine players. And I'd go to St. Louis. I'd go to Kansas City. I'd go to Dallas. I'd go to Houston. I'd go to Louisiana, to Shreveport. I'd go to all the areas that we were recruiting players for Oklahoma State. And when we had recruiting meetings, Jimmy would say, "Okay, we're going to we need a corner or we need a defensive end or we need a a running back or whatever. And one coach would say, I've got this guy. Another coach would say, I've got this guy. And then Jimmy would look at me and he'd say, you've seen both of those guys. Which one do you like the best? And so I got a chance to be able to not to make anybody angry in the room, but to be able to say somebody that had been able to see all of those guys. And so when I came to Miami with with Jimmy, you know, we we looked at the talent of the players that was there that first year and there was a lot of voids. There were some areas. And so, you know, I was the recruiting coordinator. And so I went all over from New Jersey to New York, to Connecticut, to you name it, looking for quarterbacks and and looking for certain defensive line guys and stuff. He wanted everything to be focused in Florida but you know, we were going to go after high-profile type of players, and some of them that we had inherited—Bernie uh, Kosar from Ohio and Vinny Testaverde from New Jersey—and so you know, you're going to look for great, great players. And so, uh, I developed an idea. I spent some time Gil Brandt, who was the general manager, and he was the and ran the the scouting department for the Dallas Cowboys. When I was at Oklahoma State, I spent some time and with him. And he would send me things of like, how did the Dallas Cowboys with Tom Landry, how did they evaluate players? What were the critical things? Was it all about athletic or was it about the character, the work ethic, the intelligence and those kinds of things? And so we created a a way to evaluate players and we tweaked it every year. Uh, When I became a head coach, we kept tweaking it when I was at Miami, and North Carolina, so that you could zero down because you look at, at recruitings, you, you give 25 scholarships. And if you look at a lot of programs, half of the players never become anything, I, whether they're five-star guys or four-star guys. I mean, I hated that. I didn't even, don't tell me that a kid had any stars because Santana Moss and Reggie Wayne and, uh, Ed Reed, those guys, all of those guys were like one-star players. They, nobody wanted those guys, but they were great athletes and they loved to compete and they wanted to be good. So we had a, a you know, a way in which we tried to evaluate players and stuff. And so, you know, I was very fortunate to, to be able to do all that kind of things. And, uh, and you just you're always learning it. When we went to the Cowboys, I learned even more about how to evaluate guys at the Indianapolis Combine and and how to look at guys that work out and what what makes a what makes Lawrence Taylor for the New York Giants. What makes him the great outside pass rusher? You know, well, let's go to the University of Miami and let's go get Damian Lewis and let's go get these guys. What makes great linebackers and stuff and getting Danny Morgan and and all of those kinds of guys. I mean, there were some great guys. The one thing about it, they loved to win and they loved to compete. And they they just, you know, they were they would sacrifice whatever it took to be a good football team.
0: Well let me ask you this then, because obviously most athletes who, you you want to win. Like I feel like in life you don't want to be you don't want to be a loser, right? But I feel like this generation of athletes is a little bit different than when you were coaching as far as Miami talking about everybody wants to compete. Nowadays you have the transfer portal where a lot of kids sometimes sit there and go, well, I'm not going to play here, so I'm just going to jump in the transfer portal after one year. Like, you know, how yeah. do you how do you think the difference is between back then and now? And you know, how do you how do you compete with that? And how do you get yeah. guys to stay if you were a coach right now?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's a terrible rule by the NCAA. I think that kids should not be able they, if they want to transfer, no problem, but they can't be immediately eligible like they used to. Go and sit out a year. Think about this, Russell Maryland, okay. Russell Maryland was not a high profile. Hubbard Alexander, the receiver coach, recruited him and he came late and, and to the University of Miami. He didn't have any offers of any Division I program. But when he came and he was 365, 375 pounds, oh. he couldn't even finish. He couldn't finish a practice. Boy. I mean, he was dying. And uh, But he came into my office and he said, Coach, he said, it's critically important. He says, I want to play. He said, What do I need to do? Well, you need to lose weight. So the next day, for the next year, he was out at like five o'clock in the morning with a plastic trash bag over him, and he was losing weight. And in the spring, he was down to three thirty-five, and then in the fall, he was down to three fifteen. Now he was playing behind Cortez Kennedy and some other great players, and but but he was hungry. When those guys graduated, he won the Outland Trophy and he became the number one uh, pick in the in the draft, and so. You know i just think that kids they're looking for immediate and and most of the kids i mean to be honest with you mo- almost every single one of them had to kind of pay a little bit of a debt of playing behind somebody to learn <clears throat> i tell people my last year at the university of miami on the practice squad the team that was going to give us the look every single week the running backs was Willis McGee and Frank Gore. Mm. Now think about that as the guys they're on the scout team, they're running the ball. And in today's society, those guys would have been gone in in a month. They'd be they probably would have gone, but they love playing for the Hurricanes. They love being a part of a winning program. You know, they loved our coaching staff and obviously they went on to have phenomenal careers at, at Miami and obviously into the NFL. So I, 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 I disagree with a lot of the things that are going on with in college football right now with that kind of stuff with the, you know, being able to just jump ship and move around and, and go, you know, I, I think it's bad for the kids.
0: Didn't you have a fullback in that back in that backfield too for a little bit, DJ Williams, and he was a little upset yeah, DJ Williams, about playing exactly. fullback. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, that became a first-round draft choice as a linebacker, and he played in the in the Sugar Bowl against against Florida, and he, he caught a pass. He, he was playing, he, just get me in the game, whatever position it is, I want to go play.
3: Coach, who was one player because it's not an exact science as far as recruiting? who's was one player that you know you obviously don't hit on everyone? but one player right. that maybe you far exceeded your expectations um, when you recruited him, like some guy that you didn't expect to become the player he, he became.
2: Well, I mean, obviously Russell Maryland would be one of those type mm-hmm. of guys, you know. And uh, a kid that I had at the University of North Carolina, Robert Quinn, that uh, I think last year he had 21 sacks in the, yep. in the league and stuff like that and uh you know a lot of people didn't think that he was going to be very good coming out of high school and he had he had a cancer brain surgery and everybody was like you know what we don't want to have anything to do with this guy well lord tells you you i mean he's one of the greatest off the edge pass rushers not only in collegiately but obviously in the national football league and he's done a phenomenal job but you know there's 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 so many guys i mean uh you know santana moss is a great story from the standpoint that he played in high school and um and i think he only caught like maybe four or five passes his senior year because they ran the wishbone but here's a kid that runs 10 100 meters and you know and, and we were blessed to you know we had no scholarship, so we got him to come as a track athlete and then and as soon as he practiced for about a week it's like you know what we're going to find a football scholarship. We need this kid to play in games because this guy can flat out fly and he can change games. And, uh, you know, so you just look at, you know, if if there was one or two things that I would say always was very important to me, I actually really truly wanted football players that played more than one sport. If they just played only football, that's all they played. I was a little bit nervous about it. I loved kids that were, they played football, then they went to basketball, they went to wrestling, or they played baseball, they ran track, they did another sport. And because, you know, Leslie O'Neill, who played at Oklahoma State, and he was a, you know, he's a great, great player for the San Diego Chargers. He was a six foot five, 205 pound, you know, skinny kid at Little Rock Hall. He comes to Oklahoma State and, and he becomes one of the greatest pass rushers in the history of college football and, and in the National Football League, but he was a great athlete. You watched him play on basketball and he could flip his hips. You could see him run. You could go backwards and you go, you know what? This guy can put on some weight and he played, you know, 245, 250 pounds at Oklahoma State. And he was phenomenal. I mean, they had they had three straight 10 and two seasons with guys like him, you know,
0: now let me flip that for you. Let me let me ask you: Is there a guy that you thought you were going to have on National Signing Day, then he flipped, and then turned out to be a great player? You're like, damn it, he was supposed to be a cane.
2: Oh, I'm sure there were some. You know, uh, I to be honest with you, when they don't sign with the canes, I really don't care what the hell <laughs> there they. There you say. go. I like that. that. That's my favorite exactly. You know, I mean. And you guys know the story that the scholarship that became available for Russell Maryland was because the so-called USA Today defensive player in the country was a defensive lineman from Chicago. And he had been committed to us all the time. And two days before national signing day, he called coach Johnson and, and he said, I'm going to flip and I'm going to go to Illinois and I'm not going to come. And that's why, in, and literally Jimmy talked in staff meetings for probably about two and a half months, guys, we got one more scholarship. Does anybody got anybody? Joe Brodsky, you got anybody? No, Hubbard, I said, no. Dave Juan said, no, Tony, nobody had anybody they wanted to. And about two months later then the Hubbard, everybody kind of got tired of Jimmy saying, we got the scholarship. Who are we going to give it to? And <laughs> Hubbard said, well, I got one guy. He's smart. He's a great guy. I think he's got a chance to be somebody. And so we signed him like I don't know a month or so after signing day. I don't even remember the date. And it was Russell Maryland, and and he became the Outland Trophy winner. And the guy that went to Illinois, he ain't worth a shit. He <laughs> didn't go anywhere.
0: <laughs> so, like they say, everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about right. this two thousand and one national championship team. Obviously, yep. you leave and go to the NFL to the Cleveland Browns. How tough was it making that decision?
2: Very difficult. Um, I had probably in the previous two or three years I'd probably turned down ten jobs in college or in the NFL and stuff. I loved coaching at the University of Miami. I loved the kids and I loved the community and I loved, you know, after 11 years of coaching there, you get a you get a gut feel of like programs throughout the state where you can recruit, where you can get kids that can come in, whether it's Craig Erickson from catholic school in west palm beach or guys all over the state you know how do you get guys to come into the program and uh you know everybody makes a, a dumb mistake and that was probably the dumbest mistake i mean i had signed the scholarship uh, signed the contract with the university of miami uh before we played boston college and before we played in the sugar bowl and uh but there was a few little tweaks that we could never get solved and uh, and i actually turned the the Cleveland Brown job down in january uh, i just said i'm not going to leave i said i'm here we went through the recruiting signed all the kids and and uh but we could not make anything happen which is you know i don't need to get into all of that kind of stuff but uh you know uh the the 2001 football team with the kids that were there the kids that we signed and the kids that were coming back the jeremy shockies and the I mean, there was a, it was loaded. Kenny Dorsey, uh, you know, people don't know much about why he's having so much success as the coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. But I will tell you, I can tell you, uh, he was brilliant. He understood football as well as anybody and as a quarterback and he knew he was surrounded by great players, get the ball in the hands of guys that can make a difference. And he did it in 2000 and, and we went 11-1, and one, and the next year they win the national championship. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was a – you know, all of those guys were just – they were great great athletes, but they they loved to compete. They loved to play. And uh, they liked being in a program that was going to challenge and play anybody in the country, you know.
3: You had to make every scholarship count, uh, Coach, when you came in, 95, 96, ni- you know. And, and yeah. while you were making those scholarships count – we hit a pretty bad period that '97 season, yep. uh, one of you know the toughest seasons the program had seen. Got shut out by yep. FSU. What what kept you? What you know after a season like '97 yeah. and the following season you beat UCLA, kickoff. What made you think that after that season that we're on the right track? When when you yeah. just had one of the first, you know, one of a losing season for the first time in a long time.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the first couple of years, I don't know whether the NCAA put any thought into what they were doing, but they took away the 31 scholarships, but that was only, that was a big chunk. But the other small chunk of it was how about the guys that left the program because they could go into the NFL? We lose Ray Lewis and we lose a lot of guys that were juniors that said, you know what, we're going downhill. I'm not going to stay. I'm going to go ahead, which I don't blame them. I and mean, they had, Dwayne Starks and there was a, some great great players but they went ahead and left a, a year early and so that made not only did you lose the 31 scholarships but you probably lost another eight to ten players that could have stayed or you know you would love for them to have stayed but in 97 when we went five and six and uh, it was i think at that time they said it was the first losing season in like 20 years i mean it was bad and uh, but the thing that the thing that i can tell you is is that The the work ethic and the character of the kids in that locker room, they didn't want to quit. They really, truly, they wanted to. They fought. They fought as hard as you can imagine to try to stay eligible to be six and five and go to a bowl game and not be the losing season. And that that triggers me as as a coach that when kids don't just throw in the towel and say, you know what, we're going to go two and ten and who cares? I I, we'll, we'll lose games and stuff like that. The other part of it was is that we did a great job of getting some unbelievable walk-on players, guys like Joaquin Gonzalez, okay? I mean, people don't know much about him, but he had a chance. He could have gone to the Ivy League schools on scholarship to go to Harvard or Yale and some of those schools. He wanted to play for the Hurricanes, and he wanted to come. We've got Jeff Popovich who came. He had offers to go and play. He came. Aaron Mosier, who was a – a great athlete. He was a, like an 18, 19 foot pole vaulter. He could have gone in the decathlon. And so we tried to figure out a way, okay, we don't have scholarships. We better find some walk on kids. And obviously, you know, Santana Moss initially was going to be one of those type of guys, but uh, we found a way to make him get him a scholarship. But, but those being able to do that and then to know, okay, now we're going to get our scholarships back Uh, You know, you just never looked – I just never looked sideways. I don't care what it is. I don't look at what's going on some other way. It's like this is my team. These are my kids. These are my assistant coaches. And I love them all, and I'm going to do whatever it is to to try to make it, you know, be successful.
3: And you look at college athletics now, uh, Coach, and and the leash is much shorter. Like, (laughs) if if a coach doesn't turn around a program in uh, sometimes one year – But, you know, two or three years, on to the next guy. You know, I don't know what the magic number is, but you look at, you know, this year's uh, hurricane team, we lost the game to Middle Tennessee State, people are already up in arms about it. You know, how much time does a coach need, especially during this period where you have the transfer portal and and you can lose a guy on a moment's notice and and just, you know, the, the game has changed?
2: Yeah, no, it definitely has. And obviously, I mean, it, it surprises me and shocks me a little bit over the last 10 years just watching the way in which administrators and athletic directors and sometimes maybe the coach, how are you going to build your program? I mean, it's, you're not going to do it in one year or two years. I mean, it's just not going to happen like that. I mean, you got to go in and change the entire culture within the locker room, within the weight room, within the practice, how they're doing it. Um, I can tell you that when I went to to Miami in 1995, walking in there and, and the first practices were not like they were in 1989 when we left, you know, the work ethic and stuff was not in the same, same direction. And they had won two national championships in previous years, you know, but you, you just from a coaching staff today, I just think that sometimes administrators, they need to give a guy an opportunity to build the program and, and you go back and take a look at Jimmy Johnson going, if he hadn't working for Jerry Jones and somebody that he had a relationship with, we were one in 15. And the next year, I think we started off. We were like two and six. And I think at one time, you know, we were like two and six or three and seven. And we ended up, you know, being seven and nine that year. But in today's society, he might've got fired. You know, guys get fired today in one year, uh, Rob Chudzinski, you know, uh, he was one of the players at Miami and he played for me and stuff. He got he he got the head job at the Cleveland Browns. He made it through like 13 games, I think, before yep. they fired him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I just think that, it, you know, people, administrative people need to be a lot more conscious about what it takes to build a program, you know. And today, obviously, with uh, NIL, you guys know if you got if you got millions and millions and millions of dollars, go buy them. You know they're buying guys and starters from all over the country to come and flip a program around. That's a little bit, to be honest with you, that's what happened at USC. I mean, they were mediocre; they were an eight and four team for about the last decade, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're they're pretty good because now in Los Angeles, they've probably got a lot of money to be able to get starters that played at Oklahoma and at different other programs around the country.
0: I mean, shoot, one of the dudes has either American airlines or Adult uh, NIL deal. The, the, yeah, uh, the former, uh, last year's bullet. Well, yeah. How about, how
2: about, how about the kid that went to Ohio state and he got a Corvette and got Yours. a car and he got like a million dollars. He never played for Ohio state and he left and goes back to Texas. Yep. Okay. And gets more money and stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you, and maybe I'm just too old and stuff. I don't think that that's good for how you build a player or how you build a team, you know, especially for 18-, 19-year-old kids and you're giving them a million dollars to come into the program and they haven't, they haven't won one game for you yet, you know? That's like, a difficult I, thing I, for me. I, 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 I was
0: I, – I always say the same thing when I talk to people and I'm talking about the NIL money, I go, wait, so you tell me if this kid gets injured, you still gotta pay him the money? They're like, yeah. "Yeah." I'm like, hell nah. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. Well, Harry will remember this, like, if you remember the old dormitory that we had there at the University of Miami, it was the old married, and they actually, I think somebody said during World War II, they used it for military people. It had no air conditioning. And we had kids that were, I mean, they, could, they had no air conditioning, the Jerome Browns and all, uh, Alonzo Highsmith and all those guys living there, and, and it was awful. But they were happy to be a part of that program, and, and they helped that program win lots of national championships.
1: One of the things you know we talked about with like Davy and Lewis, some of the guys you brought in is, yeah. they they heard what your culture had to be, and then they went out and police the guys coming in. If they weren't at practice, okay. Nate Webster would you know give them a, a little uh, sleeper hold or, out, or, baby. you know they would they would make sure that they realized that the guy next to you was needing you and you needed him and you all had to work together. And that's yeah. where you built a team. And that's where the, in, in that 2000 on to 2002, those guys sure. did everything in their power to win. And they didn't want to let the guy behind them down or the guy in front of them down.
2: And, and Harry, to be honest with you, I mean, and we'll throw out like Danny Morgan for an example. And you just said Damian Lewis and a lot of those guys. That's why in my personal opinion, the athletic team, Ability is only a—it's maybe fifty percent of what you need to go when you recruit somebody. It's the character, it's the leadership, it's the work ethic because those are the guys when when there's some tough things that are going to happen. How are they going to how are they going to run the locker room? You know, and like you just said, I mean, uh Damian Lewis, he, there was guys. We're calling, if you've heard that story before, where the phone was ringing in the locker room and guys would go over and it would be some girl calling, hey, is so-and-so there? I want to talk to him. Or somebody calling saying, hey, I'm going to bring a pizza. And he got mad. And he ripped the phone and he took it (laughs) off the wall and threw it it in the garbage. And he said, I don't want to ever see one of you in this entire room. He says, I'll whip your ass. He says, you're never going to have another call while we're in this locker room. When we're in this locker room, this is our family and we're here to win games. So how many guys do you need to do that?
1: Well, look at Uh, Dan Morgan. He wanted to play without shoes when he had that foot injury. Well, or have, they, or hey, they, how about
2: the Danny. Yeah, how about the game? And, uh, he's playing and he's puking in yeah, his I, face. That was, I was just going to say that, that. I, you
1: know, you know, you know. But he, his dad came in the store the next morning. You know, and I go, man, your son. I, I just love him. He's unbelievable. He goes, well, he's out in the car. He's a little embarrassed about what happened. I like, I'm embarrassed. That was one of the greatest things I ever <laughs> yeah. saw. I mean, he didn't. He didn't bend flinch. over to he puke. He just shot it out. It went right through it and made the tackle. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of guy he was.
2: You know, and what's funny, uh, there's some great story. I We could talk for decades about stuff. But Danny Morgan, you know, obviously his dad was a close relationship with Dan Marino. And uh, and his dad looks like a bodybuilder. I mean, he looks like somebody that could whip half the people in the world, you know. And so when we used to do, when the freshmen came, before the varsity came, we didn't have enough guys to, to have offense and defense. So everybody did both sides they played offense they played defense and we did some stuff so we put danny morgan who had been a running back and he kind of really and his dad definitely wanted him to be a running back and uh so we put him over in the very first day on seven and seven and he's playing linebacker he knocks down like two balls intercepts two balls and at the end of that practice i told the guys i said he's a linebacker i said we're going to put him the will linebacker <laughs> Well, his dad after practice the next day when all he did was play linebacker, his dad was over there waiting for me to come off the edge <laughs> of the field. I'm like, boy, this is going to be bad, you know. And, uh, but, and, I, and, I, and I think, thank God, you know, that Danny went on and won the, you know, the awards and Everything, first round yeah. draft choice and stuff like that. But I, it was, you know, you just, where do you put the players? You put them where they get a chance to be the greatest player they can be. And but, you I know think the that's guys you
1: talk about are all character guys. Yeah, they're all guys yeah. that had that ability to lead. And we talk about that now on the team we have now is who's yeah. the leader, who's the one that's calling the guy out in the locker room, who's the one that's going to make sure that people are doing what they need yeah. to
3: do. And yeah. how long does it, it? It takes a long. Does it take a long time to change that culture, Coach? Because you hear about the culture in in the UM yeah. locker room has reportedly not been very good
2: for quite a while now. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. I know that you, you, you definitely need to make it done in one year. You don't have two, three, four years to, to flip the entire culture of it. And one of the things, and we've talked about players, but one of the things that I always felt was critically important was you needed somebody within each of the positions. We used to have leadership meetings and we'd have somebody come, whether it was Edron James from the running backs, and we'd have uh, Reggie Wayne or somebody from the receivers. How about Brett Romberg as an offensive lineman? You get somebody – I mean, here's a guy that nobody thought was going to be that great of a player, and I don't know what he played, six, seven, eight years in the National Football League, because he was he was a guard, and then we got, I think uh, – Bryant got hurt. We moved him at left tackle. He he had never practiced at left tackle. He played his ass off, and we won the game with him playing. So, if you get guys like Damian Lewis at the defensive line and Dan Morgan, and you get an Ed Reed in the secondary, trust me, you're gonna you, those guys are gonna run their meeting rooms and they're gonna run the locker room, and you're gonna change the culture of your entire program.
0: I mean, you name some of the the best of the best to ever do it. I just i. I don't know how you do that like how do you identify those guys in the recruiting process Like, how do you know like this guy has the want to to be great and like he's going to do more than you guys are asking for or this guy you can identify a young age is a leader
2: yeah well like we said earlier i loved it when guys played other sports that you would go in uh, the very first time i ever saw ed reed was at basketball and he was he was the point guard and he was their season was over with and and curtis took me down there and and we watched him and and the things that he did kenny dorsey did the exact same thing i flew all the way to san francisco and watched him and watched him be a leader on his basketball team and, and in the pregame, i said they got no chance they're gonna get beat 40 points by this other team <laughs> and they blew the other team out and you know we talked about robert quinn from north carolina I mean, he was undefeated two years as a sophomore, junior, as a heavyweight wrestler. And you couldn't knock him off his feet because he was. And so when you can watch kids Santana Moss run and sprints and do all these kind of things, it it, it opens your eyes as to what they're capable of potentially doing. And uh, they love to compete. And so, you know, they just all do a good job.
1: But, but when you were there, you let your guys participate in track. And yep. they had a really good track team. I mean, you know, Coach uh, yep. really enjoyed the fact of having the guys like uh, Najee and Ed and, you know, Santana run. But a lot of yep. coaches don't want their players doing two sports now. And it looks like, you know, football's pretty much all year round as far as camps or practices or routines. But do you think it's a good thing to have them run track during the season? Or you know, Absolutely.
2: Season? Yeah, and in the springtime and stuff, I mean, you're only going to have 15 practices. And, you know, and we and our kids – participated in almost every single one of the practices that there was rarely, I think like the pin relays one time, they said, Hey, we want to take the sprinters. We want to take Gerald uh, Jones and we want to take Santana and run the the four by 100 meter up to up that. And, it, you know, they'd already been playing for a year or two. And I said, heck yeah, go ahead and let them go. And they, I don't know, they probably wanted it or whatever, but uh, I just, you know, I think that Giving kids that kind of an opportunity to do something, uh, you guys remember Kennard Lang was a great defensive line, a first round draft choice. Well, he wanted to play baseball.
1: Yes, he did. And
2: uh, <laughs> so he went down there and he tried to play baseball. He couldn't hit a ball or anything, but, but we <laughs> wait, gave him Wait, spring. wait, wait,
1: Butch. When he hit a ball, it went a long way. <laughs> yeah,
2: he you know, a, a funny a funny oh, story is. was
1: is I went to practice one day at baseball right in the spring, and and I see this guy getting up, hitting the ball, and he's hitting the scoreboard. The scoreboard's shaking. In the meantime, my wife is eight months pregnant or whatever, and we didn't have a name. And I go home, hey, honey, I got the name. We want Cunard Lang Rothwell was our son's name, you know. I always kid Kennard about that. But this kid, when he hit the ball, he didn't hit all the time. But When he hit it, it went a long, long way. Oh,
2: He could do that. He could do that. But I just – and I think a lot of it was, you know, a lot of the coaches that I coached, that were my assistants and stuff, they were multi-sport players themselves. I mean, they ran track or played baseball, played basketball and stuff. And I think we all really appreciated kids and saw that there was going to be an upside. You could see a kid like, you, know, you can see like Reggie Wayne and he was 165 pounds, you know, in high school. And you could project. Okay, he's six one. He's probably going to be about one ninety five as soon as he quits playing four sports in high school. You know, he's going to put on some weight. He's going to gain some weight. And we'll have a good strength program and good diet, and he's going to get to eat a lot of good food. And so, uh, you know, I just, you know, I guess it's just the things that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of.
3: You know, Coach, you, you've mentioned Ken Dorsey a few times, and and people that covered him knew how competitive he was back then, though you wouldn't see it often, and then. You know, a couple of weeks back, I don't know if you saw the video <laughs> oh, yeah. of he, him in the, you know, in the box um, yeah. going on a little bit of a rage. And obviously he, he apologized and all that. But, did, but it, did it surprise you to see that coming from him?
2: No, not at all. I mean, I know how much when he when he got cut and he got let go and fired at Carolina, he was with me at FIU for a year. And, I mean, he did a phenomenal job in helping our offensive coaches and, and our offensive schemes and some of that stuff like that. And you knew how much he loved to compete. And what he, it was burning in his heart. And, you, and when he did that, you know, it's not something that he's going to do all of the time. But I think what it does is I think it lets everybody know how critical it is for him, you know, to he, he's got his soul put into trying to win. And, uh, and I think the Buffalo Bill offensive line or uh, offensive players, they got to appreciate that. Hell Don't yeah. you want your coach to be willing to, like, tear the hell out of something because <laughs> we want to win, you know?
1: Hell yeah.
0: I'm, I was the same way when he I was like, damn, that's right. Can he do it? Why do you think he's the champion? I mean, I yeah. heard
1: anything he did, regardless what it was, you know, a pickup game or whatever, he always wanted to win. And he, he did not Absolutely.
2: like any of that stuff. And yeah, when his offensive
1: lineman let someone touch him, he wasn't happy with him either.
2: Yep. His very first scrimmage, we, we, we had a scrimmage when he came as a true freshman. And, you know, uh, we, he was with the second team. And everybody's a little bit concerned, like, okay, how's he going to do? You know, he's he's tall, he's skinny, he can't run. And at the end of that scrimmage that day, I think he, I don't know, I'll make these numbers up. He was something like like 15 out of 18 completions, but he threw three touchdowns. And you said, you know what? He's he's got the magic. He understands and he can see who's open, how to get the ball to the guys, and uh, and you just knew that it was going he was gonna do really really good as a player.
3: And you see, uh, I mean, your guys, Dan Morgan's in the front office. Kenny Dorsey's an sure. offensive coordinator. A lot yeah. of your guys, Damian whether, Lewis, Damian Lewis, yeah. Clint, uh, Hurt. Clint Hurt. I mean, so Clint many Hurt. are yeah. on coaching staffs or or on teams. So it's not that they were great just great players. They were great characters, great minds, football yep. minds, uh, which, yep. which helped, you know, obviously the program and you, you coach, you were on the winning end of a lot of these and you obviously are, were a huge part of, of turning the program around. And, and you were also on the other side of probably one of the worst defeats in program history, just a few, a few years back when you were the head coach yeah. of FIU. Was that bittersweet? Yep. How did that, how did that feel? Uh. At it the was, old Orange Bowl that no longer
2: it exists. It was weird. It <laughs> was weird. I mean, it was. Uh, That's a great. You answer. know, there was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stress because that game was the sixth win, which qualified us to be bowl eligible. And you're like, okay, we got to be bowl eligible, and we got to beat the University of Miami. And, uh, you know, but, you know, again, from a character standpoint, and I told people this, I've, I've said it for a, half a dozen years or so. I knew we were going to win the game. Our players, we had an open date the week before that. And the way that our kids practiced, they practiced like Super Bowl champions. They, they sold their soul out. And when, we, when they ran out of that dugout onto that field, they were not intimidated by one ounce, by who the other team was on the other side of the field. They believed in themselves. That that if we do what we've got to do, don't turn the ball over, don't penalties, don't fumble, do all that kind of stuff. If we do what we got to do, we'll put ourselves in a position to try to win the game. And then obviously, you know, uh, uh, the quarterback threw the ball extraordinarily well. We had some good players. We made some turnovers on defense. and, And, you know, and so, but it is, it's a culture. You know, I mean, it really truly is. And I don't care whether we want to talk about Alabama or whatever programs you want to. There is a culture within the program that decides how you're going to win and what what the players, because when the players, and I've, I've, I've heard this with Jimmy when we were in Dallas, with Michael Irvin and all the great players that we had there. They told everybody how we're gonna practice. The coaches didn't say we're gonna go out here and practice hard. We're not gonna make any mistakes. The leaders of the team hold all of their teammates. You know, I mean, you ever seen Michael Irvin ever practice? I mean, he practices like the Super Bowl, whether it's August. He doesn't I mean, he fought everybody one-on-one, whether it's Benny Blades, it didn't matter whether it was at Miami or whether it was in the in, you know in the NFL. And that's what you want. You want your players to hold everybody to accountable to what it's going to take to be successful, to win.
0: Yeah, I think we got a long ways to go for those type of dudes in our, in our locker room. Yeah, man. but Coach says you got a year to do it. You, you've got a year to turn that culture around. So. I get it, but we better be hitting the transfer portal hard then because I don't see what, what Coach has been saying. I don't see that with the guys we have. Maybe they're like 10.
1: Yeah. 10's a place I to start, know.
2: right? I don't know the players, you know, but, you know, Mario is a – he's been involved in successful programs yeah. okay he was with us at university of miami as a player and as a graduate assistant assistant offensive line he's been at alabama he's been in, he helped uh, greg Ciano flip the program at rutgers and stuff so he knows what it's going to take
0: that boy is going to be working and I, and there's one well, he, person he that working. we can trust he, it it's does. mario because we know he's a relentless recruiter he doesn't sleep and, you know, it's just – I just think he's got a, a, a good project on his hands because every time we bring on a guest as far as a former player, coaches, it's always about hunger, desire to be great. And I don't know if it's the, the kids these days, but it, they don't look – maybe it's and NIL money, maybe they're just more comfortable now, but it, you got to have that hunger, the desire to, like, not want to lose. Like, I don't want to lose. I get guys that are emotional when they talk about losing games. Hey,
1: ask Butch how much his kids got back, back in 95, 96 for a weekend month. 25, 30 bucks deep for the weekend?
2: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing got... him
1: next door at the Circle K, you know, putting two hot dogs together, you know, and, exactly. and talking on the payphone out front.
0: Hey, You do what you got to do. Now, let me ask you this, Coach. So, we had a one of your former players, and he was one of our former guests on here, and Clinton Portis. And, right. obviously, you coached him at University of Miami, and then you go to Cleveland Browns, and – you know, Cleveland. Everyone's talking about needs a running back, and Clinton's yeah. coming out. And you know, he told us he's like, "Yeah, I thought I was going to Cleveland the whole time. And <laughs> I then, did too." And then you guys picked, I believe, yeah. Willie, Willie Green from Florida. No, from yep. BC. BC.
2: BC. Okay. From Boston so College. Yeah.
0: What, what? 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 went into that decision? Like, how did it? How did it go down?
2: The difference, Clinton Clinton was had great vision as far as how to run football, and which I think all great running backs they better have that. When you coach at Cleveland, probably half of the season is in snow, mud, and, you know, you're not playing. You're playing at Pittsburgh. You're playing, you know, you're playing in Cincinnati. You're playing, you know, all the northern teams. And it was debatable between the two of them, OK? Because, uh, you know, William Green was, he was probably six one and a half, two hundred and 225, 230 pounds. And you felt like if we're going to have to be a powerful football team, and at the time when I took the job at Cleveland, Tennessee was still part of it, and they had a running back that was 245 pounds, and the Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> met us. They had he was 245, 50 pounds, and everybody um, Cincinnati had a Dillion was a big running back, and you and everybody kept saying you've you got to have somebody. You know that can just power in the, mud, in the mud and stuff. And in his first year, he was uh, he was like twenty yards short of a thousand yards in the first in his first season. And we went to the playoffs, and uh, it, that was just the difference between. Because Clinton was a great player. I mean, he was he was fast. He was electric. He could he could cut. He could see. And. Uh, you know, he was one of the best recruits that we had at University of Miami. Yeah, he I think could dress, he could I think, dress well, too, I think
0: right? Clinton said he didn't like him after that. He's like, damn, I don't think Coach Davis, I must have done something that you went for not letting me drive. Him. Uh, right. He didn't, not
2: at
3: all. <laughs>
0: Other than maybe driving you a little crazy. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: no, but Coach,
3: yeah. uh, we know you're on a tight uh, schedule this evening, so uh, um, it, I don't know if you have time for a couple more questions or, or, or you got to get uh, going.
2: you got one more question, if there's one more yeah. Uh, anything I, important? I mean, well, when when you
3: think about uh, you had a lot of big victories. You you snapped the FSU streak um, it, when the Orange Bowl ran out of water uh, in two thousand. <laughs> Obviously the the Sugar Bowl game. Um, right. You you spoke about UCLA, Ohio State. What's one game from when you were a head coach at Miami that really? sticks out for you um, as far as, you know, the victory, what it meant to maybe the program, yeah. or what it meant to maybe you personally?
2: Yeah, probably probably the victory over uh, Florida State. We in, Right in the middle of the season, we were playing Florida State and Virginia Tech, and they had Michael Vick, and, yep. and uh, you know, and, and the win, we had not beaten Florida State in the previous years. And, uh, you know, we took the lead, and they took the lead, and I don't know what we had two three minutes left to go in the game and kenny dorsey took the team down and hits jeremy shockey for the touchdown and and then they drive down they miss a field goal which florida state's probably missed more field goals (laughs) against miami than any other team (laughs) in the history uh but that game i think what it did i think i think it just skyrocketed the program back to like we can be number one in the country and whether it was for that season to finish up 11 and one and and help us beat Florida in the Sugar Bowl, and then obviously to win the national championship the next year, and compete for the national championship the next year after that. I think that that game, had we not won that, it would have been very—it'd been a big bubble to try to climb back into.
1: Hey but did you ever get mad at a mascot at a game? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking uh, of Sugar Bowl. In the in the Sugar Bowl, I mean, yeah. And, and you know what's sad? And I, I called Pete Garcia up in the press box, and I said, go find that guy and tell that guy if he touches that ball again, <laughs> he'd spike the ball, and we got a 15-yard penalty. And I don't know the young man's That's name. That's one of my best came...
3: friends, uh, Coach. That's one of my best friends, JD, and and he tells okay,
2: the well, story. So he came to the he came back to the office. I don't know a couple of weeks later and apologized. And I hugged him and I told him, "I'm i sorry. I apologize for it." But you know, <laughs> as a coach, you lose your mind when you you look at everything that might cost a way to lose the <laughs> yep. game. And after beating Florida so bad during the game, you'd hate to lose the fact that the that the you know. Because the mascot's going to spike the ball, you're going to lose the game. <laughs> Todd Zevers
3: had to hit a 50 he, yard extra point.
2: That's for it. That. Todd <laughs> Siever just got inducted into the Hall of
1: Fame. Too. Heat of the moment. All right, coach, <laughs> yeah. we
0: appreciate your time
2: tonight taking us guys, down memory lane. We great. really appreciate it.
0: Thanks Hope so you have much, coach. Thank you. Take care. You
2: guys, take care.
1: Wow. That was pretty good stuff there, huh? Oh, man.
0: I mean, listen to the names that he <laughs> says. It's just, you know, okay, we talk about Miami getting back, and we talk about being great. What the? Come on, man. I take Dan Morgan, Santana, Mons, Reggie Wayne, Ed Reed, uh, Damon Lewis. Linden I mean, it's, yeah. but, but it's see, just one of those things where that will you're talking about yet. a special eye for talent and also a special eye for coaches that can develop players. I mean, come on, C.J. Johnson, let's just go there. was He's one of the best receivers, coaches, job. And then he went to the Saints and became a beast there, too. Obviously, we know what he did with seventh-round picks and everything, Marcus Colston, and just, you know, being able to coach them up. That is just, to me, that is, damn, I don't know if we can ever get yeah, to that. He had
3: Stoops. He had CJ. Oh, yeah. He had Pagano. Coach Saul, he had Coach Kiho, Coach, coach Saul, Kehoe, Mark.
0: I mean, the list goes on and on and on. He's had some guys, and, you know, he's got some coaches, and, damn, that was some good times. But listen, I— and hey, we got a hell of a coaching staff at we, least on paper here. We have an amazing coaching staff and I know it's going to take coach football some time, but I just want to see guys like he says that wants to be great that put in the extra work, that want to fight in practice and say, "I'm the best. You're not getting your spot back." Like that's all I want to see. I want to see guys go out there and not make, make mental mistakes and fight and be hungry and be emotional just to win. And and
3: and his initial recruiting class, that first class with uh, that was 12 recruits or whatever it was with Edger and James Santana, Dan Moore – those guys, for those people that don't know, those guys as freshmen took the seniors' jobs. Yeah. Okay. We had a receiving core seven, eight, nine. Oh, Jamie yeah. German, uh-huh. Omar Roll, and uh, and uh, uh, Jamie German, Magic Benton, Omar Roll. None of those guys were playing by the end of that year.
0: Nope. Nope.
3: Regular they were play- like, Nah, come on. Yeah. Let me get that. Santana Moss with the number forty-eight.
0: Oh. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man, that was that more was stank than my 39 yeah, as a freshman. Yeah. Damn. Well, look, I ain't even going to lie. I think that this freshman class that Chris Ball is going to bring in this next recruiting class,
1: they're going to take some well, jobs as well. Some of the guys he's brought in oh, now, yeah, they're, and they're already making a difference. Even, you know? if,
0: even if you just look at the guys he's brought in, not even just – Recruiting class, but also your transfers—the two wide receivers that led league. I mean, led uh, the game last week. Yep. Transfers: Colby Young, Frank Latson. You look at the defensive. The defensive end is the best player on the team. Yep. You know, and then you got the young defensive end. That everyone's talking but,
1: about can be the next but, but, best but, thing. You know, here's the thing we keep hearing: Oh, our, our, this coaching staff's not developing these players. You know, and you talk about Colby Young. I mean, here's a kid that a year ago was playing in a junior college. Okay, you got to come in and learn. Remember, we talked about all our quarterbacks: seven hundred page, six hundred page. Playbook versus a six-page high school playbook. I remember you know? learning that when and, I played, and <laughs> it, it's it's not easy to do, and oh, you've got to learn the confidence. You got to yeah. learn how to, you know, do all the things. Oh, and you got to be able to block. You got to be able to do. You well, know.
3: you just brought up a great thing. I mean, uh, a junior college transfer, and what in game five or six, we're starting to see him come, you know, come of age, right? Well, if you think about Jeremy Shockey. His first real big game was what? That Florida State game as a junior college transfer, and that was game five or six, and he didn't look back. it. It takes time.
1: It it takes time, but, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, a a player comes in, he's going to be a superstar right away, or if he's not, it's the coach's fault because they didn't teach him up. And it's like we talked about it last week. They've only had a little bit of time if you think about it. But, you know, to be able to be in live action is different than practice. But it takes time. And, you know, a guy like him is behind the other receivers because of where he came in. He came in late. It wasn't like he came in with no. spring football He came in two days
0: before damn practice started. So, yeah.
1: you know, it, it takes a little bit of time. And I think you said it just now. The recruiting class is coming in. These kids are here now. Those are those guys that Butch had that are going to start setting the table, building that culture.
3: Yeah. But it's interesting because we've been dealing with this cultural problem. I mean, when Al Golden was hired, when for – 10 years at least, 15, and, and it was interesting to hear Butch say, the culture part, that's got to get solved in one year. And I think
0: I, I think Crystal Ball is the guy to do it. And I think he is too. He's a no-nonsense guy, and he's going to tell you exactly how we're going to practice, exactly he, how we're going to be. you
1: what he said today about the penalties and stuff? Of course. I mean, he came, matter of fact, there was no yeah, pulling But, I mean, if you
0: look at it, he was the, the least penalized team going into that game in the ACC. Then they have a game where they just, like he said, mentioned getting lazy, not having your technique. I guarantee you. Some people got cursed out, and you probably see a very well-disciplined well, you know, team against them.
1: Sometimes I think our fans don't understand that other teams have the same problems. Ah, we don't Alabama work. had 17 penalties the other day, which cost them the game probably. Yeah, Texas you know, had 15. And, and the Dolphins had five penalties in a row yeah. in a drive last week, and that's yeah. the professional listen,
3: level. Listen, we've always been penalized. So to be honest, I don't even care so much about the penalties as far as – like I, I. I just feel like – the University of Miami has always been a highly penalized team, whether the refs are always after us yeah. or whether we're just—and I think <laughs> or, that's or part of it—or they don't miss. Or or we're when we're getting right. held, or, 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 yeah, and we never get a holding call.
1: But well, um, the center, I, the center hurt a lot on those. You know, motion penalties because he couldn't get the snap count down. Yeah, yeah it's false starts and stuff. I always, I love it when they say uh, everybody, but the, but the center. center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but but
3: you know, penalties also show effort, and penalties are things that can be cleaned up. I, I you know, that's something you work on in practice, and and slowly they get away. We've but a lot
1: of great teams, including Miami, that led the league in penalties. Always, you know. Yeah, we're, we're that's why the penalties,
3: penalties don't actually concern me but that much.
1: Y- when you're when you're trying to build the rest of it to get the games to win you those little plays can make a difference well
3: and we're not good enough right to overcome overcome them. Yeah. That, that, that's the problem is we're not good enough to be even though we did convert that second and 26 which was great or maybe we were a yard short it but, was impressive yeah but we're, impressive. We're, we're just not good enough to overcome them on a consistent basis yeah, like
0: it ta- it takes it takes a little time some practice I mean geez, let's give it at least a year you know a year with this coaching staff and then we can start talking about okay this isn't doing right. This isn't doing right. You know, uh, when you're talking about it, new system, new offensive coordinator, new defensive coordinator, new players on a uh, uh, new wide receiver core, like there's a lot that goes into this, a lot of moving pieces, and I think right now you see that our our coordinators are now getting comfortable with what they have to use, and you see that those guys are now executing and changing the way that they play call and do certain things. Now, do we have clean things to clean up? Absolutely, but that's going to take time with – okay, I know this guy is not the level that I want at this position. Let me go get this dude in the transfer portal. Let me get this guy recruiting. And then we can start
1: building up on the process. And, and, the, and the, the big thing is depth. you got to have well, depth. You have to have depth. when you depth. lose a guy for injury or whatever, yeah. that next guy coming in has got to be as good if not better in some and cases that's, that's, to help you continue That's going to that. take
0: a, a one or two
3: recruiting classes. What are we, six games in? Six games in, and I'm asking you, Brian, just because we were on the same boat. Like now looking at it, looking at maybe how how long (laughs) it's taken to kind of, you know, figure the offense out, figure the defense out. Uh, We were both coastal or bust. Um, And I'm not saying to go back on your word. You're not that type of person. But would you now kind of maybe reconsider that opinion that you had or that we had in the off season, saying, I don't care what it is, there's no excuse, we should, still, we should win the Coastal. No, I, I still
0: believe that. Okay. Because if you look at, like, let's just look at the, the one loss that we had in conference. We lost 27-24 to 24 on mental mistakes. Again, missed field goal, missed assignments. Other than that, you win the game. It's, to me, fourth and one, I mean, first and goal from the one-yard line, you should win that game, right? Yep. Nine times out of ten, you're going to call up a play that you're going to get in that. So, to me, that team still is... Coastal or bust, you know, they have what it takes to win the Coastal. I don't think this team was an ACC championship contender as far as I think they can beat Clemson like that. But I thought that the rest of the teams, Pittsburgh's, lost so many guys. North Carolina lost so many guys. Everybody, Duke new coaches, everybody in our side just didn't look like a great team coming into the year. I still don't change my stance. I still think we should have beat North Carolina. We had the opportunity to beat North Carolina. Um, we should run out the table, except most likely in Clemson at Death Valley, um, and yeah, it's still Coastal or Bus. Well, one, one, one of the
1: big things that we got to stay healthy because we've just lost so many guys. Well, I mean, we're but down. That, that second half, you know, we I mean, lost. I didn't three. even know who
0: that running back was. Stanley? Yeah, that's the transfer from UBA, UAB, <laughs> the walk on. Uh, I was like, and hey, is listen, this guy? he ran the ball. No, he ran it. He yeah. toked that rock. <laughs> but,
1: but I just was going, I can't believe he did that well. You
0: know? <laughs> he toked he that rock, boy. I'm t- and he, listen, when it, that's the same thing when you say, why do you have hope? Well, Coach Cursoval was able to identify two guys, one at UAB, one at a junior college, that just contributed to a win that came in two days before practice. If that doesn't tell you that he, had, him and his staff have the eye. ability to eye to identify talent, I don't know what else you need to know. That's what you want as a coach to say, okay, that's a diamond in the rough. Kobe Young's a diamond in the rough. Yeah. And what did he do? He proved that he could be a receiver, that the co- um, Tyler can just say, well, it's one-on-one. Let me toss it up because my guy's going to come down well, and he's going to go and up that and That get throw
1: it. that he made for the touchdown to him? Yeah. catch. Yeah. That throw was unreal. There are not many unreal. quarterbacks that make that throw. But, but, no. but
3: the great part is, is I, I don't know if you heard, I think it was the interview after the game, they said that that was a play they identified in the week of practice. And they knew that if they got a certain look from Virginia Tech, they were going to run that play and they knew it would be successful. So it's nice to hear that too. That you know it. It and we, we hear it all the time. That's you practice the,
0: how you play, and 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 they I, preach that. I,
1: I think our buddy Brian talked about that the other day about getting these guys in the film room, right?
0: I mean, look, it, it's it's. I've only I've been around some of the best guys that play this game, and the ones that are always great are the ones that live in the film room. Because if you look, even though we won the game, if we played a better team. V-Textel puts up a bunch of yardage and points because we had mental breaks again. Avante Williams made up for it by recovering the fumble, fumble right. but that was his guy where he looked inside instead of going to his guy. That's a bust. And those are just simple play recognitions that I've learned from some of the best players just watching film. And, you know, when everyone always talks about Tony Romo. Oh, my God, how come he, he can call this play out? I got dudes standing right next to me in the game going, they're going to run this. I'm like, how the hell you know that? Are the guards going to do this? And I'm like, Shit. Damn, and, and all it is is it sucks, and I get it. It's boring, but if you want to be great, you study yep.
1: at anything you do in
0: life, yep. Whether whatever work no, we, you are. We had
1: Ryan Collins on a couple years ago, and he talked about, you know, he was the first one in the, the film room, yeah. and the guy sitting next to him was Ray Lewis. 100%. <laughs>
0: you <laughs> you know, have to and, be. And they were
1: the last ones to leave on top of that. You know, so it really is, if, if you want to play this game to that level, that's the part you have to know.
0: I mean, look, we, uh, Coach Davis talked about it today, Ed Reed. Right. If you watch any of the NFL films when it no. comes to Brady and Belichick talking with mm-hmm. Ed, he would he would scheme them up because he watched so many film. He knew exactly what their tendencies was. So, he's like, you know what? I'm going to run this and they're going to think I'm going to do this and then I'll be in a different position. Yeah, it's
3: That one play that Belichick said is probably the greatest play he's ever seen in his life. And
0: that all comes from one thing watching film, and I think these these kids literally can take their games to the next level it, it, by just a little bit you more film. how
1: easy film is today compared to what it used to Holy
0: be. May, let me tell you something. You take I, it on
1: your iPad and you go home.
0: It is. But by, by the time, I remember when Shaq Quarterman and Pinkney used to come over to John's house after the game. By the time they got to John's house. After a game. After a game. Their iPad would have every single thing broken down into offense, defense, red zone, third down, fourth down, special teams, categorize you just hit a button boop, and it's there i'm and like and you see all the plays shit. everything you want wow literally within hours it's not it's already it's not broken like down. you have
1: to go through and just go through it can no. go back i mean you push what you want
0: you, you literally could. you know we literally do say like okay cool in the third quarter you messed up on this play bring it up okay you can go third quarter boom defense what down was it third and second whatever, and whatever right. cool boom it's right there all the second downs all the thirds and all the first downs i'm like john's like bro Man, if I had this back in the day, what? Yeah. And I get it because you talk about guys that are students of the games, and we've had some of the best come through. John Bees and John Vilma's of the world that just studied so much and knew what was going to happen that if you gave them those type of tools, oh. the level that they could go to. The, because now it's like you're not, you know, scrounging through this to find this tape and this DVD. Oh, my God, it's on the computer now. Okay, great. But it's not broken down like this. and we got to wait two days. This is like. Oh, damn, third down. Yeah, you're right. I did miss that block. Okay, see how the guard pulled and you didn't do this. You're supposed to come underneath. It's amazing the tools that they have, and there's no excuse. If you want to be great, all the tools are there for you. Now, it depends on you. You've lost three games. What have you been doing? It's not enough. Go do more. That's all it is. Do more. Take 10 more minutes of your day. What's that going to be in a the, in the, in the whole week? It's going to be another extra and hour in the works, week. Yeah.
1: That could be the difference in a win and a loss, correct? Oh, well, b- it, it, it,
0: it's easy because if you just look at some of the mental bust that we have, it was all play recognition. It's like, OK, cool. But also saying, you know, I remember we spoke to D- the DJ yesterday on the podcast and he was talking about, yeah, the, the coordinator can call a great defensive play. But I have to be on the same page with my D lineman to know that, okay, if he got moved out of this gap or he's pushed this way or went into the wrong gap, I got to know I got to come over the top of him. And we've got to be on the same page. So that's why we all got to hang out and understand each other and have the communication in practice. And that's why we coached ourselves to say, how are you going to run it? Okay, we're all going to get together and run this play like this. And that just takes that next level of. Where you are in life as a, as a ball player, and goes go
1: back to that leadership and that, that you know, Yeah, I Yeah, and, and,
3: and, what, and what Coach said, right? One person in that room, because that one person can get everybody into the film room or get everyone together. I mean, you remember the old days, Harry, the offensive linemen always stuck together. They ate together. They worked out together. They got tires and trucks when they didn't have weights and pushed them on Green Tree. Um, and, and, you know, you heard the stories of the old days. Ed Reed had his own film room in his house oh, yeah, when it was did. the NFL. So, so did Ray Lewis, right? I mean, why were they so great? They didn't have iPads then, but they, you know, they I mean, made you heard, the film You, room. you
0: heard the story with Peyton Manning back in the day when there was no real technology. It was DVDs. Peyton Manning had a whole, what well, a library, I guess you would call it, of every single corner that he was going to play in his division, every single play on DVDs, and he would just go through them day wow. after day. And know exactly what what corner does, what his tendency does, what he wants to jump, what he doesn't want to jump. And
1: that's why he made him so, so stop good. stop watching The Housewives of Hollywood and start watching more film, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not
0: telling you not to have a good time because you're going to have a great time in college. But just know this. We had a lot more fun when we were winning. i tell you that. Going out after a game <laughs> is definitely a lot better yeah. than staying at and home after all our our week
1: long. So when you win, you feel the reward. When yeah. you work hard and you lose, it's... It
0: defeated, it you get to go defeated, out that yeah. Saturday night and then come Sunday, whether you drink or you don't, your ass is gonna bust your ass when it comes to sprinting the next day on Sunday and you get right back into your work week. And that's Well, what it let's is.
1: hope we get another win and get a streak going right now, right guys? Well listen, let's
0: let's see if we can get everyone out there on Sunday I mean Saturday at twelve thirty at Duke, you know, I'll be there. I'll have a great time I'll be and there. so you know, gonna be some amazing weather. Ain't nothing else going on at twelve thirty right now, so let's come up and show out and uh, another great episode, fellas. That was great. We'll be back next week here at Coyo Taco, right across the street from All Canes, US 1. If you're an OG like myself, it's the old Miami best pizza. I still miss the old Miami's best yeah. pizza. Not the new one. The old one. But that's where Coyo Taco is. And if you know, we got away games, have great specials. If you can't make it to a game, come by. They have great specials. They've got a, a half-gallon margarita. Oh, I saw I was like... <laughs> oh. I didn't get that tonight. You're <laughs> doing what? They're like, yeah, we do a half gallon margarita that we give out. I was like, holy! You, you and
3: students must know about this because apparently there were a lot of half gallon empty bottles spread around campus. So half gallon margarita was like thirty eight dollars. Thirty eight
0: bucks, and then they have a a Jaeger shot on game days of every Red Bull I think you get, and then they got a bucket of beer for twenty some bucks. I mean, listen, you can't you can't, you can't beat it. Great food, great atmosphere. Come on out, get some food, and we'll be here every single Wednesday. Next week, we'll have another great guest. Take it easy.